so I want to talk a little bit about deconstruction, but actually I don't really want to because I'm actually so sick of the word. I'm so sick of the word deconstruction, and that is sort of my preface and my disclaimer that I'm sick of talking about it. And every podcast and Instagram post, et cetera, et cetera, on and on, is talking about deconstruction, blah, blah, tune out, maybe. It's this overused buzzword that we keep using, but we keep using it because we still seem to need it. It's still necessary for us because we're still doing this work. And it seems to be the reality that a lot of us are swimming in right now. And yes, I do think that we need helpful ways to think about reframing our faith and examining our theology. So recently I saw a pastor who I follow advertising a gathering that he was convening. And the slogan was, you can't deconstruct forever. And at first that really bothered me because like in my mind I was like, Yes, I freaking can. I have been deconstructing since 1999, and I can keep on doing it indefinitely. But then I checked myself, and I realized that deconstruction isn't even the right, th- the right word for what I've been doing all this time. And I realized that a better word for it is renovation that my faith and spiritual life have been undergoing a near constant renovation that certainly does involve occasional demolition, but also involves a lot of rebuilding and refinishing and reconfiguring. It's as though I inherited an enormous old fixer-upper in my late teens, like a a fixer-upper house. And parts of it were absolutely crumbling and other parts inimitably beautiful and historic and worth working on and putting a shine on. So to an extent, I do think that that pastor is right in that if all we ever do is deconstruct our faith paradigm, well, eventually we'll be left without a roof over our heads lonely and out in the cold. And I don't want you to be lonely or out in the cold, and I don't want to be that either. I do want you to do the hard work that it takes to examine your assumptions and to question whatever absolutes that you were taught and to take personal responsibility for your values and your contributions in this world because no one else can do this for you. You cannot outsource your spiritual work. But... I surely do do not want you to take deconstruction to the point where in your mind you demolish what's timeless and beautiful and true and are left with only a heap of rubble. So, today is Trinity Sunday. This is the day that we celebrate the divine communal flow of all the parts of God's whole. The creator or father personality the child or Christ personality, and the spirit or the mother personality. And those are three pillars right there. If I add in my own self, which I believe that I am welcomed into the divine flow, I believe that that is part of what Christ is saying when he prays in that scripture that we just read, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. What's the Father's is mine. 
okay? I believe that we are, div- are welcomed into that flow. So add in me, add in you, us, and that gives us four symbolic pil- pillars of this beautiful, trinis- this beautiful Trinitarian structure plus us. And I love, I really love how that resonates with a more indigenous understanding of spirituality, like the four directions and the four elements. And this idea of four pillars is very resonant throughout much of human spiritual, spirituality and spiritual thinking for this idea of four. So I'm taking that and I'm building on it to share with you what has remained in my fixer upper over all these years and all my many re- renovations. I have a lot down. I have taken a lot down to pass the studs. I have torn out walls. I have taken out a lot of trash. But I would like to share a few personal things that I think of as load-bearing pillars that hold up the roof of my faith and of my spirituality. They are absolutely essential to the structure of it. And maybe, hopefully, they'll be helpful to you as well on your own journey as you renovate your own faith, which I assume will be unique for you. So the first pillar is this. God is like Jesus. Jesus is not an anomaly of God's character. God's character is like the human Christ's in that God is robustly inclusive and welcoming. Father Rohr says that God loves things by becoming them. God is embracing of suffering and inclusive of both what we consider good and what we consider bad, so non-dualistic. And God is near to us now. God is not far off. God is approachable, reachable, caring, available. And the timeless messages that Jesus preached as we read them in the gospel scriptures are exactly the antidote to all the world's poison that we see now. Healing, unconditional love, caring for the poor, the sick, the stranger, the prisoner, the blessing of the merciful and the peacemaker, the great gift of forgiveness and our mandate to spread forgiveness all around the world. Seeing beyond the physical and the social structure and the ego toward the depths of the heart and the depths of the true self. Jesus preached timeless wisdom that is sorely and desperately needed today as we navigate the challenges of modern life and politics and evil that we see all around us. You can find lots of spiritual teachers and fonts of wisdom in this world, but I don't think you'll find any better than the Christ in embodied human form. And this is why we remain a Christian church. This is why our name celebrates the peace of Christ, because Christ sums everything up. And the more time you spend with Christ, the more I think your eyes will be open to that truth. The Christ, in my experience, is utterly reliable in this way. I rely upon the fact of my understanding that God, that this is what God is like, that God's exhibit A is creation or the natural world. Exhibit B is Jesus, the Christ, and his demonstration of life in the divine image of God. And exhibit C is the spirit, which indwells us and is freely given to us and is part of our divine DNA. 
now, which we celebrated last week on Pentecost. The second pillar that holds up the roof of my faith is this. The world needs our gifts. You and I are worthy and valuable, and we are here in bodily form on this spinning planet, in this galaxy, in this cosmos, in this dimension of time for good reason. And we do well to figure out what that reason is and live into it because we're uniquely equipped to do so. And I'll give you a hint. It probably has something to do with learning to embody love. The world needs your gifts. This is a pillar of my faith. It informs my ethics and my politics. It informs my daily practice. It informs my willingness to work on behalf of creation, the marginalized, to write injustice, to speak out. It informs my self-love and my self-compassion, as well as my love and compassion for other people. I may not be a well-known or famous person, but I am not nobody, and neither are you. Every human being matters, and the more that we raise our consciousness to be able to encompass a true vision of what pro-life means like that, the better, the better and more evolved our world is going to be. So listen, my definition of sin is that sin is anything that impedes love. And you need, both for yourself and for the sake of every other human godchild on this planet, to contribute to the reflection and perpetuation of love in this world. The happiest and healthiest human beings on earth know that the life given to service is the best. You can ask the Dalai Lama, you can ask the Pope, you can ask Desmond Tutu, any of the world's great spiritual teachers, and they will tell you that it's true. If you withhold your giftings and your love from the world, you are withholding the ways in which you uniquely reflect the image and love of God. And my friends, I am so bold as to call that sin. Maybe that's hard to hear. For the past few centuries, the Christian church has focused far too much on the sins we've done and ignored the acts of service and love that we have left undone. And this has left a huge gap in our society. Our focus on personal piety has damaged the reputation of the Christ that we say we follow. Don't withhold your acts of love from the world. Not because of laziness, not because of apathy, not because of in ignorance or uncuriosity or unwillingness to hold the tension of the world's pain. You impede your own imago dei in this way. We all, we all do. And I'm not saying this to you because of some esoteric ideas of what might happen to you in the afterlife. I'm saying it to you because you do your own self a disservice. We endanger our own health and well-being on this earth now if we withhold the love and the reflection of God on this earth. That was pillar number two. Pillar three is, and I'm sure of it, we can't go it alone. We can't live out our authentic calling to love alone. We've 
got to have community around ourselves. The most introverted among us, which is probably me, <laughs> must have, yeah, Tori's, Tori's like, oh, I don't know if you're right about that. <laughs> so it's a lot. <laughs> I could give you a run for your money, okay? The most introverted among us must have support and accountability. The Mental Health Foundation says this, quote, people who are more socially connected to family, friends, or their community are happier, physically healthier, and live longer with fewer mental health problems than people who are less well-connected. There you go. Father Rohr makes a great point in his new book, The Universal Christ, which I recommend to everybody read. It's so good about how over the past 500 years, the church at large has made a great emphasis on the salvation of individuals and almost no emphasis at all on corporate salvation, which works toward the good of all. We need accountability to one another if we're going to take Jesus's messages seriously. Like his earnest prayer that we learn to become one, which incidentally would eradicate tribalism and racism and patriarchy and white supremacy if we took it seriously. Messages like care for the poor. Messages like the stark danger of the love of wealth and money, which has brought us like unbridled destructive capitalism, which is killing our oceans and our forests and our soils and, yes, our very souls. The message of Jesus says... Come to me, no matter who you are or what your past is. Whoever, whoever's heavy laden, and I will show you what rest looks like. We can't go it alone. Listen, in my experience, rest looks like sharing burdens with community. Laying my burdens down and letting my friends help me carry them letting myself fall apart because I know there's a family there to catch me and pick up the pieces. We can't go the countercultural way of Jesus on our own very well. Many try, and they discover that they speak into a vacuum because this whole thing is relational. And that's exactly what the image of the Trinity teaches us, that all the work and all the growth and all the flow and all the refinement is done in the context of relationships. We who are made in the image of God and who look to the human Christ, whom we consider to be part of God's trinity, part of God's divine whole, are made for that same kind of relational understanding and learning. Tell me who you are without telling me that you are someone's sister, someone's parent, someone's best friend, someone's spouse, etc., etc. Our relationships teach us important and necessary truth about ourselves. Not that our identity is wrapped up in other people or that we're codependent or whatever other baggage, but that we simply need each other as teachers. We need each other to hold up a mirror so that we can see ourselves better. So how do we do that? And that brings me to my fourth and last pillar. It might be a little bit unexpected, but it is this. That communally and individually, we need ritual. 
We need the metaphor of rituals to help us process embodied spirituality. We need together to both affirm our humanity and our spirituality, and rituals of many forms help us do that. This is human nature, I believe, and we're going to do some form of ritual or else we're not paying attention because most rituals stem from presence and mindfulness. I've observed that collectively, especially for those of us who are white Americans, because, you know, so many generations ago, our American whiteness began to disconnect itself from the land and its unique regional culture and our, our medicine and our um, folk religion and folk medicine for a variety of reasons. I could go into that, and I will somewhere else some other day. But also, especially those of us who are not part of the more sacramental faiths, faith traditions like Catholicism or Anglicanism, we suffer from a lack of ritual. And I believe that an influx of meaningful, mindful ritual is part of our medicine. Because what it does is help us, help take us out of our ego and our time addiction into something larger than ourselves. It helps us to pay attention both to our own self-absorption self and mind slavery and to the difficulties and tragedies and tensions that we'd rather ignore in the world if we're being lazy. We are always, always seeking to ground ourselves somehow and learning to harness our own penchant for ritual helps us to do that. I observe that we humans who are trying to live out a healthy spirituality need two kinds of ritual. This is just my own observation, okay? The first kind we need is external ritual, which gives us an embodied, tangible way to understand internal shifts and realities. So an example of that is us singing liturgical songs together in church, or participating in communion, or baptism, even celebrating a birthday with a cake and a song, or a 38 mile run. External ritual helps us to make sense of change. It helps us to make sense of loss or of growth. It marks time. It celebrates or it grieves. It observes rites of passage and participates in lament. External ritual is often done communally, like what we're doing here now on any given Sunday morning. And often part of its purpose is actually to connect us to community, to a larger whole. We also need internal ritual, which I actually prefer to call spiritual practice. Spiritual practice is what you commit to doing behind closed doors for the purpose of deepening your relationship with the Creator, for the purpose of enlarging your heart, quieting your mind, increasing your compassion, training yourself to become contemplative rather than reactive, and generally for the purpose of making yourself a better human being. Spiritual you and I do habitually to build our spirituality from the inside out. It's often some, some practice of inner silence and solitude, and it's sometimes some practice of either intentional movement, like yoga or running, or intentional stillness, like seated meditation. 
this is why we talk about liturgy so much around here, because liturgy is part of our external ritual. Liturgy is what we say when we mean the rituals that we do together to remind ourselves of who we are and what's important. Some of what we do around here is ancient, and some of it is new. Some of it is so ancient that you might even get fooled into thinking that it's lesser or undeconstructed stuff. I feel really grateful because you can go very few places and find a more intentional liturgy than what we have here. I'm really proud of our liturgy. And the reason for that is because we've been free to question everything. We've been free to take it down to the studs and to figure out what works and what we want to keep and keep the best and reconstruct or renovate the rest. And that is holy work that we have done here together in the context of this community. And we know that you need healthy pathways to God in your own soul. Lest you be, lest I be, I include myself, lest we be continually sucked into the noise and the ego trip all around us all the time. And we know that each person is at liberty to make their own soul decisions, which is why we pastors say, we're not your gurus. We are not your pathway to God. You have your own access and your own responsibility. So it's your job to create the structure of a healthy spirituality within your own life and habits. And for that, you need ritual and spiritual practice often. And for that, you have to do your own renovations because there's no crew that you can hire to come into your soul and renovate your fixer-upper faith for you. So... These are my own four, I call them pillars of conviction. They're things I really think are true. Yours might be different. Mine are God is like Jesus. The world needs our gifts. We need each other, and we need ritual. And they are what the structure of my own faith rests upon. They are why I don't give up on church. They are why I don't give up on spirituality or, for that matter, religion, And why I'm always seeking to grow and improve myself. It's why I don't let community go, even though community is messy and vulnerable and downright inconvenient sometimes and sometimes pretty annoying. Because I need you guys. I need you guys to help me see myself. And I need to humble myself so that I can be seen. I need other people to keep on pointing me back to the way of Christ when I get stuck in my own weeds. So with that, I would like to invite you to participate with me in some intentional liturgy, which is in your guide. What did I name it? The liturgy for litany for what? (laughs) Faith renovation. That's right. I know I did this, something like that. Here we go. I'm going to read the regular type, and you guys are going to read the bold, okay? God, we are thankful for the freedom we have to live authentically. To determine how to put our faith into practice. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit of God in us. who fills our eyes with a vision of wholeness for all, 
We know we have work to do. To learn to live from a place of contemplation and compassion. So that we may send out into the world redemptive love. Christ consciousness. We know that the healing of the world starts in our own souls. Grows with curiosity and risk-taking faith. Love and suffering are our teachers here. Help us, O oh God, as we do the work of renovation. Keep us to your way, which you've shown us in Christ's body. Amen.